Welcome to Walk on the Wild Side. I'm Crispin Baines, and I'm one of the founding members of The Wild. I'm also your host for the show. In this episode, we sit down with Cynthia Roy, who's the president and CEO of Regional Hospice in Danbury, Connecticut. And we sit in our studio in Soho, New York, and chat about end of life as a subject. Cynthia joined Regional Hospice in 2007 and has grown the organization from a small business to an $80 million non-profit corporation. She's widely regarded as one of the leading progressive voices in the hospice space and the end-of-life space today. She's won a ton of awards. She speaks regularly, and you can see her full bio at regionalhospice.org. It's a fascinating episode. When we were doing the early research for The Wild, we spent some time in hospice. Um, we were lucky enough to, to be able to sit with some of Cynthia's patients and tease out what makes a good death and a bad death, and in fact, what makes a good life and a bad life. And it seems that taking more chances and helping more people are pathways to really living your best life. That's something we'll talk about on the show, in addition to a lot more. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. So welcome to another episode of Walk on the Wild Side, the podcast where we introduce you to the people and the ideas that can help us all to flourish throughout the life course uh, and also leave a legacy to be proud of. Today we're joined by Cynthia Roy, uh, whose bio you heard in, in the introduction. Uh, she needs no introduction, but Cynthia, Cynthia is, uh, is widely regarded as one of the, the leaders and, and progressive voices in, in hospice and um, an end of life uh, in America and therefore in, in the world today. We've become good friends uh, and have uh, worked on a couple of projects. She's incredibly collaborative, uh, imaginative and, and creative and uh, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for coming onto Thank the show, you, Cynthia. Probably the best way to start is is at the start. Uh, what? How did you? How did you get to this point? What's What's your What's your story? And perhaps more importantly, what's What's your calling? Mm -hmm. So I started my career as a therapist, as a family therapist, and I never thought when I started the work that I was doing that I would work in end of life necessarily. But I was fortunate enough in my life that I had a lot of loss, personal loss. I say that fortunately because I learned a lot of lessons from it. Mm -hmm. But I think more than anything, as a family therapist, you learn to work with families and patients with all different kinds of needs. And my career sort of circled back around to doing end-of-life care. And once I started doing end-of-life care, I knew it was a, a field that I was going to do the rest of my career for a lot of different reasons. One, because... One of the amazing stories is that when I started off in hospice care 23 years ago, I was sitting across the table from in a, in a team meeting with nurses and physicians and other collaborative staff working on you know, patient care issues. And it was brand new to the organization. And I looked across the table at this woman and I said to her, you look so familiar. Where do I know you from? And she said, because I took care of your best friend many years ago when she was dying of leukemia. Right. And I knew at that very moment that I was in exactly where I needed to be and I was doing exactly what I, what I was meant to do. Like, what are the odds that I ended up working with a woman who took care of my best friend years, years and years prior? And she remembered me. And I remembered her face, which is amazing. So, so I, I believe in, in synergy and things happen for a reason. And I believe that that was the beginning of it for me. Right. Yeah. And so, the, so what came next? What were your, your, the early chapters of your, of your career that have led to this point? 
So I worked in the aging field and I felt that aging was a really important part of what I did. And I, and I loved working with people on aging. And what I kept coming up against was people at the end of their life or nearing the end of their life who hadn't made decisions or choices. They hadn't really done any planning. They hadn't thought about planning. They had lived beautiful lives. They thought they were going to be healthy for a long time. And they found themselves in a position where they weren't healthy. So I found that I kept encountering, you know, families and patients like that before I ended up going into hospice work. And one of the things I think I saw a lot when I was at the Alzheimer's Association is people who were not making good choices in terms of end of life decision choices. So they were ending up in a position where there was an emergent situation in the emergency room and a choice had to be made medically what to do with their loved one. And I was really profoundly changed by a number of families who I met who had made no decision-making choices, and end up having to make quick choices at bad times. Right. So I found that you know end of life was something I was really interested in, and that's how I started. That's how I actually got into the end of life field. I went and worked for a hospice, and that's how I met that nurse who I hadn't met years prior. Um, early in my career as in a hospice as a, as a family therapist, which is what I started as, I met far too many people who were too young, who had no place to go. So in Connecticut, where I started in my hospice, I had patients who were in 30s and 40s years old, and they um, were dying, and they had teenagers and young kids in the house, and they didn't know what to do. And there was no options, you know, 20 years ago, no places to go. It was either the hospital or a nursing home. That was it. And so that took me on my trajectory of how I built my center and opened it five years ago and, you know, where I am today in terms of what we've built. But I was really profoundly changed by the fact that there were not a lot of choices for people in terms of end of life. Right. And still aren't a lot, but there's a lot more than there was when I started. Yeah. Well, and, and thanks, certainly thanks to the work that you've done and, and the center, which I've visited. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in seeing how to get it right it's a fantastic example and, and what a journey. So tell us about the center. How, how did that start? And Oh boy, the center. <laughs> so uh, 15 years ago, I decided I wanted to build something that nobody else had built. I went around and looked at what existed around the country. What was hospice look like, end of life issues, programs, units, hospital units, palliative care units. And I decided that I really wanted to build something that was custom, that was unique, that was stylized, that felt like a hotel, but had the light and energy of um, this most positive place to be. And I realized very early in my journey in doing that, that uh, I needed to change the hospice regulations and really the Department of Public Health regulations in Connecticut in order to make that happen. So I went through this process where I rewrote all of the regulatory language for the state of Connecticut for public health and end of life, um, thinking that was going to be not a big deal. We passed it through the House and the Senate. It would get signed into law by the governor, no problem, easy breezy, <laughs> and we'd have a law. That's not at all how it worked. Instead, right. what happened was uh, I had a there was a hospice that existed in Connecticut. They decided to challenge me. They spent you know, at the time it was probably half a million dollars in lobbying fees to fight me in building my building because they didn't want competition. Yet they didn't have any private rooms in their building. Patients were four patients to a room looking at each other right. at end of life. So I knew that I needed to do this no matter what. It was my vision. It was everything I needed to do and more. Uh, I finally, after about two years, got the law passed and got the governor to sign it. Wonderful. And in 2012, the new regulations were put into place. Anyone who builds in Connecticut after 2012 has to build under the regulations that I designed and wrote. So that's a wonderful really? thing. Mm -hmm. It requires that we have private rooms, requires that anybody at end of life must have that kind of dignity and special space for themselves and their loved ones. Right. 
it's that's phenomenal to to be able to do that and really set the precedent dignity what a what a huge part of the process is that something that you look for is that where you consider success at the center so success to me is a number of things it is that we built this 40,000 square foot building and it's not just a building it's the people who work there we would be nothing if we didn't have the people that work there they uh, wholeheartedly believe in our mission they love compassionately and unconditionally to our patients and their families. And they give a lot of themselves from physicians to social workers, to nurses, to aides, to uh, chaplains, to even the housekeeping staff that goes into the patient rooms. Everybody has an integral part in taking care of patients in our center. So success is making sure that to me, a patient has had a good death. And that sounds strange. And most people may not know what a good death Mm -hmm. is, but a good death to me is that they've lived a pain-free existence. They have the symptoms are under control, but more importantly, that there's a sense of peace with, for them and their families and that issues that maybe were things they needed to resolve have been resolved before they pass or in the process of being resolved with their loved ones. Uh, that to me is success. It doesn't matter that, you know, you have nice things or nice cars or nice anything because I have patients every day who come from very successful backgrounds billionaires, millionaires, you name it. And everybody's going to die the same. Everybody's going to die. And what's the most important is that we've lived our life fully and we're able to actualize and transcend all of that stuff at the end of our life. What a goal to go for, you know, and and, and you have to design for that and you have to recruit a team for that. And you have to have a clear set of values and you have to have a uh, a um a purpose that everybody buys into to create that that i i love that there is a notion of a good death versus a not so good death and i and what i love more is that you figured out how to get there and you're doing it on a daily basis it sounds like or at least providing a platform where people can do that where when you started it was four people dying in a room together now with the you know progressiveness of the design people are dying better and and that's that's a wonderful, um, it, it's wonderful. And I think I feel like you're only just at the start as well. What are some of the things that you're most proud of? And this might be best told in terms of stories. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I'm sure everybody that comes to the center gets the 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 the, the wonderful treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but are there any standout stories that you you've you've thought? You know, they, we we did really really well here. Yeah, I have some great stories. One in particular happened recently is I have a board member who's been on my board for five years, and she's this fabulous woman, unbelievable career in her 50s. Um, when I met her, I didn't know her. I didn't have a relationship with her. Um, and she was referred to me by somebody as, as a, would be an outstanding board member for the board, and she has. Uh, but shortly after I met her, I met her husband. And I said to him, like, I recognize you from somewhere, one of the other kind of crazy full circle stories. It turns out that her husband, who was a bit older than her, was my college professor at Columbia University when I I got my graduate degree 20 some years ago. And he was the one that taught me research statistics. And I hated the class. It was awful. You know, it was like one of those classes you go to and you're like, oh, it's boring and dry and all of that material. But he was a great professor and he made it more interesting. And we laughed about the fact that here, you know, 20 years later, I'm meeting Stephen again, over 20 years and got to know him and have a relationship with him. And shortly after I got to know him last year, he was diagnosed with a rare pulmonary fibrosis. 
it turns out that he lived in the city for many, many years. He actually lived down near 9-11, and it turns out that he was exposed to the chemicals on the pile um, and developed pulmonary fibrosis, much to his shock and horror and surprise. Um, and then very shortly thereafter, he uh, called me one day and said himself, I think I need to come on hospice. And I was horrified that here, you know, a good friend was going to end up on my service, went out and saw him in his house, lived on this beautiful 100-acre parcel in Litchfield County, gorgeous, beautiful contemporary home overlooking all the woods in a pond. And he said to me, I really want to come into your center. You know, he'd been there. He'd, he'd had a relationship with me personally, with the work we'd done, with his wife. Um, I really want to be where you what you've built. So I'll never forget. It was last December 19th. We moved him into the center. And he ended up passing on January 1st. So he passed very quickly. And right before he died, he was a real amazing letter writer. He would always email me these fabulous letters because, of course, he was a, a professor of research, mm. and he was just a, a creative guy. And he would write me these beautiful letters about life or things that you know he wanted me to know. And when he died, he, before he died, he sent me an email, and he said, Cynthia, everything you've built is for the families and the loved ones and the patients and beyond anything I ever imagined it to be. He's like, it's everything – and more that it should be. And he said, you are doing everything right. Keep doing what you're doing because I'm so grateful for the love and caring that I got in this in this center. And that to me is hands down, that's success. And that to me is just an amazing story. And, mm -hmm. and here he was a good friend and I was very privileged to be able to care for him and he got the services and support he needed and his wife has, as well. But um, that was really one of those memorable experiences that I had that I knew that, you know, we had really, we had done it right. Like yeah. we had really, yeah. we, we got it right. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I think that's probably one of the many gifts of the work is, is, is doing it right. Um, and another area that I know you're passionate about and you're working on is, um, is pediatrics. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that for for a moment. I mean, that in itself is is, is difficult work just because mm -hmm. of the the nature of it. But um, what are your feelings around pediatric care? How how do you do it differently? I know that you're um, currently one of the leaders in the field, and in fact, we'll talk about it a little bit more. Are, are um, you got plans to, to to build the only pediatric wing on the east coast and one mm -hmm. of only five in the in in the country? I believe. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's, it's a phenomenally important part of your work. How do you approach that type of work? So no one ever wants to hear the words that their child is going to die. Horrible. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no easy way to sugarcoat the work. It's very difficult. Uh, we take care of more children, teenagers, and babies in Connecticut than any other uh, medical facility in, in the state. Um, so every day I have a handful of children on our, on our uh, hospice program. What's unique and different about um, hospice for children is that the way the Medicare, the way the health insurance benefits work is that you can actually go on hospice and get treatment simultaneously when you're a child, which you can't do when you're an adult. So you can get treatment to cure your illness while being on palliative care or hospice, which is really an important piece of it. So what that does do is it allows us to get to know patients and families really for a lot longer period of time. So the average time I have a child or a baby or even a teenager on my program is usually two years. So we know them really well, um, sadly. And, you know, the kids are, the kids are incredible. And one of the things we did a couple of years ago was we changed our tagline to making the best of every day.org. And I think that's an important piece because kids especially are making the best of every day hands down. Yeah. 
they're resilient. So I truly believe that children who are terminally ill are angels placed on this planet to teach us lessons because how else can you possibly imagine a child or baby dying? It's just, it's horrific. There's just no way to look at it and be okay with it. It's horrible. But one of the things we try to do is make the best of the time the child and the baby has left. So we take patients on our hospice program and often have a fair amount of uh, parents who know that their baby is going to be born with a life-limiting illness, and we put them on the hospice service before they're born so that we can walk that journey with them and their infant until that baby dies. And that's a pretty profound experience. Um, but the kids are amazing teachers, and I'll tell you a quick story. So I had a child who I will never forget, never forget, named Corinne. And she was on my program probably about a year and a half ago or two years ago. You may remember me telling you the story about her. And she was an African-American child who lived in a very poor community. She slept on her mother, her grandmother's couch because her mother uh, was not the custodial parent for her. And found out when she was, I think, 11 years old that she had a rare form of uh, blood cancer. Had gone through many, many rounds of chemo and radiation, treatment, everything, you name it. This child had been through the mill. Uh, still extremely poor, you know, very few services available to them other than through their Medicaid Husky program that was available. She came to be known by us and our social worker and nurse went out to do the admission of her on hospice at home in the apartment. And I remember like it was yesterday, uh, the social worker and nurse leaned down because she had a very hard to hear voice and said, you know, what is it you would like? Because one of the things is, you know, that we do a lot of our wishes because most children uh, through the Make-A-Wish Foundation get one wish per lifetime. Once that wish is completed, they don't, they don't get another wish. So we do a lot of wishes, not just for children, but for adults. So Chris, the nurse, had leaned down to her and said, you know, what is the wish you would want to do thinking it was going to be Disneyland or toys or something amazing? And Corinne said, I want to go work in a homeless shelter and help others who are in need. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Like how many 12-year-old kids say that, especially kids who are terminally ill? Yeah. So we made that happen. We made it happen. She uh, went and volunteered in a soup kitchen, and she gave food to the homeless men that were there. And they were wonderful with her, caring and supportive, and were like completely shocked that this child wanted to do this as her dying wish. She subsequently came into our center and spent Halloween and Christmas with us. We did a lollipop Christmas tree for her. Her entire Christmas tree was made of lollipops. And for Halloween, she trick-or-treated in the hallway in her wheelchair with the other patients and the other staff. But she was a pretty amazing child and one that I'll never forget. And one of the things I think that was really poignant about her passing is that in our center, we didn't have a specific pediatric wing. We had our entire center as adults and children. And it became very clear to me when we cared for her that it would have been nice for her to have her own her own apartment, so to speak, her own suite where she could go and her family and friends could be and where other kids could be so that they all had their own space. So that's what started me down this idea that I wanted to build a children's wing. And, and it would be, it's for babies as well and teenagers. And will be one of only five in the entire country, which is shocking and concerning that there are not, not more available. Mm -hmm. Because uh, two months ago, I went to Germany and I looked at other pediatric hospices. And just in Germany alone, there's over 20 pediatric hospices. So the right. services are robust there. And it's not like we don't have children here in America who are dying. Of course we do. We just don't have pediatric hospice because it's expensive mm -hmm. and because health insurance providers don't cover it mm -hmm. and they don't mm -hmm. cover it enough, which is a shame. And it's 
not okay in any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. These resources should be available to all kids, regardless of their ability to pay. So by opening this pediatric unit, um, hopefully by fall of next year, we'll be meeting the needs of children and babies and teenagers who need it, and also be able to provide respite services to them when their parents want to go away on a little vacation. Because what happens to those parents? They don't get to even go anywhere because there's no one to care for their children. Yeah, yeah. No, it's phenomenal work, and it's great to have people like you with the the vision and the um, and the energy to put towards it. Like when you were changing the um, the legislation in Connecticut, you've got to push through. Um, it requires that, and I know that you're working on it with Roger Ferris, um, the architect um, who's a mutual friend. And you know, interestingly, how this touches you because I think Roger was introduced because one time we were looking to help a patient to go and view her, her grave site and she couldn't drive and we wanted, we needed to find a helicopter and Roger volunteered his helicopter, which was wonderful and I know he's enjoying the work. It, it is meaningful work and, and, and anybody that gets involved gets a sense of that. You get to do it every day. You spend a lot of time with people who are dying. Mm. It, it, it gives you an unusual and um, an, an almost privileged viewpoint and access to people. And I'm interested in what, what are some of the things you've learned bedside and, and with people are dying um what, what do people think about towards the end what, mm-hmm. what, what, are, what are we all thinking about towards the end how can that help us to live better in our day-to-day lives I think is mm-hmm. the ultimate question I think that people you know people are funny like that when I tell them I work with dying people they you know they don't really know what to say they're like oh it must be so sad I hear that all the time it must be so sad and yes working with children can be sad um working with someone who's 30 years old can be sad but I'll tell you, I get far more out of the relationship and I'm inspired by what I learn from the patients I care for. I mean, I meet, you've met some of my patients. We have really pretty amazing people that we get to meet and learn about their lives and walk on the what I would say is a privileged journey with them. It's really is a privilege to be able to take care of people at that stage because most people, the, the stuff that gets in the way of everyday life is gone or it's still there, but it's not important anymore. And so you get to meet people at a very raw, transparent, conscious time in their life when they're reflecting on what could have been or what should have been or what did they do or not do. So I've learned a lot from the people that I've cared for. One thing I've learned that's vital is that I see my role as taking care of the living while they're while taking care of people who are living fully until they die. That's, I think, an important distinction Mm. because people will say they're dying and yes, they're dying, but they're really living fully. Most people are. You're hoping they are. That's the goal. Um, I would say, you know, I meet people of all walks of life, people who've grown up with nothing, people who have made millions, people who've been huge success, people that have had their success as being a stay-at-home mother and they've raised these amazing children, all different kinds of backgrounds and experiences. And the things that I would take away the most from some of the relationships I've, I've met are people who um, see what's happened in their life as a gift. So if they've been diagnosed right. as something, I had a 51-year-old patient last week who was a chair, he's a chair of an emergency room medicine for a huge health system, huge, huge position, Fabulous work he'd done all his life. And he had a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. And he was in my center and he had got, was diagnosed with a pancreatic cancer. And never, ever in a million years as a physician thought that he himself would end up as a patient. Here he was. And he, we had a conversation about, you know, what was important. And he said, you know, all those years I spent doing medicine, which was fabulous and a great career, but I missed pieces of my life. I missed 
being home with my kids to feed them dinner, or I miss the bath time with my children, or I miss this, that, and the other. And I wish I could get that time back. And so that is a theme I hear a lot from patients. You know, I wish I hadn't rushed. I wish I hadn't been on my phone so much, or I wish that I had, you know, that is a real theme. And you can say Mm -hmm. that to people till they're blue in the face, but until you end up in a position where you know yourself that you have this horrible diagnosis and this prognosis, that's poor to really affect change. People need to do it now. They need to do it now. They need to really say, okay, I'm healthy today. I'm living a good life, but I need to really reflect upon if I were to die tomorrow, am I proud of the legacy I leave? Right. Yeah. Do I feel like my kids know what I've, what I've done or the wonderful things we've done for others or what have you? But those are really important lessons. There's some of them. There's a whole bunch more, but those are a couple of them that I think are little pearls of wisdom that I like to share. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's absolutely the gift of the work. You get to do it every day. Uh, and there's there's something in that for us all. You know, I don't think anybody, you know, got to the end and said, oh, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a, you often hear that said, but mm-hmm. it, it's not about huge changes. It's lots of little incremental changes and just being thankful for, being thankful is, is a good start, isn't it? Right. And, and so let's talk about the, the process of dying. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't really talk about this before. I just thought thought of it. What happens when you die? Mm, and have you had, and the, that's the first part. And the second part, have you had or spoken with people who've died and then come back? And is there any uniform in, in the in the experience? Mm-hmm. I'm just really interested in I actually in can't believe that you're using that as an example because I actually had that experience today. I met with a woman whose husband died in my center three months ago at the age of 60. And he had a a stage four brain tumor and fabulous guy, finance life, musician, two son, two grown sons in their late twenties, had lived a a great life, been married for 35 years. And when he was having his brain surgery, about a little over a year ago, he uh, died on the table and they resuscitated him because he didn't have a do, do not resuscitate order. And that wasn't his plan anyway. He wanted to be resuscitated. They resuscitated him. He woke up in the recovery room. His wife didn't know what happened. She walked into the recovery room and he went, completely told her this amazing story that he'd had when he passed about how he felt like he was on a um, aircraft carrier and everything around him was black and he was in excruciating pain. And he was saying, the pain is too much. I don't want to be here. I can't do this. And he then, she said, no, you have to stay here because this isn't his, you know, what he reflected upon. You have to stay here because the kids need you. I need you. You can't leave us. We, you know, we're not ready yet. And he said that he went up into a vortex of white light. And all around him were angels and some people that had passed that he knew and some that he hadn't, some that were just light beings and angels. And he told this, you know, amazing story about this phenomenally beautiful experience that he had. After that happened and he got out of the hospital and he went through treatment, he continued to have pretty profound experiences where he felt that he had angels that surrounded him and supported him. Mm. And apparently it was a huge diversion from how he lived his life because he was not a person that believed in angels or believed in afterlife or anything like that. So it went from one day being sort of a skeptic to the next day, completely different person. 
and he passed away three months ago in the center. And his wife came to see me today and have coffee. Who's she's grieving and having a hard time. And I had heard the story about him. I had met him briefly in the center, but uh, he was only there for a short time. So I invited her to in to have coffee with me today. And his story was so amazing. In my 23 years in hospice, I have never heard anything like that. I have heard, I have had three patients in my career who have died and have sat up in bed and said, oh my God, it's so beautiful, right right, right out their, on their deathbed, really? which is pretty amazing. You're I right. mean, you can't do this work and not have a really strong sense of spirituality. You right. don't have to be religious, but I have a strong sense of spirituality that started a long time ago, but has since become stronger and stronger because of what I see every day. You just can't not believe in it because right. it's impossible what you see. Yeah. But that story is really interesting that, and no matter what your belief system, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't make any sense why that happened to this man. It doesn't make any sense why these patients who were not able to sit up in bed, who literally didn't have the trunk strength to sit up, were able to sit up and say that and then pass. So it's, you know, you have to take those little things that happen and wonder what that's all about. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's such a fascinating subject because it's, yeah. you know, it's the one thing in in your life that you're going to do on your own. Even when mm -hmm. you're born, you do it with somebody else. Right. Right. Yeah. And we're all going to do it. And you're not really in control of it. What you are in control of, I think, is how is your approach mm -hmm. and what's going on as, as, as before you die. And that gets us into an area that I'm interested in, in this, this notion of good dying and mm -hmm. bad dying. Mm -hmm. So what, what would you say is the difference between a good death and a bad death? Mm -hmm. and, what, what if there was a you know a list of things to do to make sure you're having a, a, a good death? Right. What what would that list look like? So we'll start with the bad death because I think that's important. I had a patient who was 46 years old who died in my center in June. Uh, a fabulous woman had raised three kids who were in high school and college, and her constant and she was you know had a breast cancer and then uh, metastasized, and she would constantly say, "Why me? Why me?" Why me? I had a good life. I was a good person. Why is this happening to me? And she struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled up to the moment she took her last breath. That to me is not a good death. Not at all. Mm. We hoped for some closure with family. We really worked hard at trying to get some conversations that needed to happen with her family to happen, and they didn't. And that's a, that's a, to me is a tough death because I think there's not closure and there's not a learning piece of why not me. Why not me? So that's, I think, the first thing. One of the things I see in people that pass away who really are conscious and who really have those very open conversations, whether they're angry at their dad for something he did when he was they were five or whether they're angry at their spouse about something that happened, the people that really pass away peacefully and beautifully have those conversations. They put those issues to rest. They voice their concerns. That even if there's not closure They've shared what that experience was like and how much it hurt them with the person that that did the action to them. So that's a that's an important distinction. Mm. And I think also who learn what it's like to die and be open to what that looks like. So for example, someone who says, Why not me? What do I have to teach people in the time that I have left 
that can be helpful to them in, the, in their future lives, whether it's children. Because, of course, nobody wants to leave their kids. I have two kids who are 17. I would never want to leave them. But if that day comes, I hope that I've taught my children everything that they could possibly have and more. And I'm one of those kooky people that believes in putting everything in writing, too, and letting them know, you know, these are the things I think that are important. So God forbid I get hit by a car tomorrow. Mm-hmm. They have the, that those letters that I've written to them. I think that's really important as a parent, especially, to do those things for your children because we none of us really know what our time horizon is like. But in looking at that, I hope my children would always know that I live my life fully with transparency, with honesty, and with authenticity. And people who haven't lived like that, they struggle. But it's never too late to find that. So I have people who haven't done that in their life, but while they're dying or while they're living fully till they die, they make that change. Mm -hmm. They make Mm -hmm. that change. It's always possible. Mm -hmm. You can always undo what you did. Yeah. Yeah. And, And it seems to me that that process leads you to having a sense of deliverance. You want to, you want to, to feel ready to to die, I guess, and and part of that is housekeeping, and not or not worrying that people are having to clear up after you, mm-hmm. and and that's practical things like taking care of your arrangements and funerals. We can talk about that, mm-hmm. but also you know making sure your your house is in order, relationship wise, and 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 that seems to be a big part of it. I, I love the fact that it's never too late. We we should all try and live authentically, but. Um, you never know when it's going to be time, and mm-hmm. um, that seems to me the the, the, the in, right in the, the middle of, of of this good death notion. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about death in terms of the society, the the notion of death, rather than on in, in an individual level, do you think that people's attitude towards death and dying is starting to change in society? Are we looking at how we do it differently? Mm-hmm. Is there disruption happening in the industry? I'm just trying to get a sense on. For know, sure. How, in, yeah. in 1986, when my best friend died, there was only one book on the market about death, and it was Raymond Moody's Life After Death about what happens when you die, all about people who had died and came back. That was the only book on the, on the market, literally. And so we read it together so we could prepare for her death, which was highly unusual for teenagers to do. But we did it, and it really helped Leslie. Uh, not be scared of dying and not be afraid. And she believed in an afterlife for her. So that was an important part of it. But that book is still out, right? And since then we have, you know, Kubler-Ross and lots of fabulous, amazing writers who've written about end of life in a variety of different ways. So I think the culture has changed. And since I've been in hospice all these years, it's changed a little bit. We've moved the needle a little bit. We have a long way to go. Because when I tell somebody about hospice, they say, ooh, like, oh, the person's dying tomorrow. And I say, no, I actually have this amazing lady who's in my center who's, you know, walking around with a rollator and she's, you know, going out for lunch and she's doing, and people are surprised by that. They expect if someone's on hospice, they're going to be imminently going. And that's not the case at all. I have lots of very healthy, you know, I have lots of amazing patients who you've met who are, uh, you know, up and about and living fully and having friends and over and, and visiting with people, uh, going on little mini trips. People can go on a trip when they're on hospice. Mm-hmm. People don't know that. So I think that that is a myth that we really still struggle with. The H word is scary for people. So sometimes we're creative about, you know, it's end of life versus hospice. You don't, the words are semantics, but mm-hmm. they do generate an experience for somebody. Often people think hospice is that we just give people morphine and we hasten their death. That is actually the opposite of what we do. Morphine is really the gold standard in pain management, but it's a scary word for people. 
There's also lots of other names for morphine that are generic, you know, besides morphine. Dilaudid is a medication we use quite a bit. It's the same thing, essentially, but people are scared of that M word. And people should know in hospice, you don't just put somebody on medication, increase it, and, and their life. That's like that, the opposite of what we believe in. We believe actually if someone is comfortable and maintained well and they're on the right regime of medications, they can live fully for as long as they want. It's when people are struggling and they're having shortness of breath and they're in pain or discomfort that people are really suffering. And we tried the whole goal of hospice and end-of-life care that's done well is preventing any of that from happening, trying to get somebody as comfortable as possible. And there's a cocktail of medications you have to be, you know, use put them on that's comfortable, that works for them. And everybody is individually different. And that can make them feel like they have some quality of life and live dignified, right. live a dignified life. Right. It's such an important part of it. And for the family members or the loved ones as well, who are also going through that, going through the experience. Mm. Death as a culture, have you, through your research and your journey, seen any, any other countries or places where they sort of approach dying differently that we could perhaps learn from? Sure. I mean, I think I think Europeans look at it very differently. Uh, certainly when I went to Germany and I looked at the pediatric hospices in Germany, they really address pediatric hospice head on. They have respite programs for families. They've really um, done a very good job meeting the needs of, of children and also adults in, in, in the European countries. I think that um, we're getting there. I think we have a ways to go, but I think we are getting there. And I think the fact that there's more books about it and people are writing about it and talking about it and people are experiencing it because medicine has become such that people are being diagnosed so early that you have those conversations about what does this mean earlier versus, you know, 10 years ago, even people weren't being diagnosed so early with their illness. So those conversations are hopefully, hopefully starting and are more poignant earlier in the, the process than late in the process. Mm -hmm. So I think we're getting there. Uh, I think America has a long way to go. And I'm a believer and, you know, I'm a culture sh change believer. I love change. I think change is really healthy and important. And I turn things upside down and try to look things very different. We did this um, animated commercial campaign about end of life. And it's a series of three commercials. And we have a fourth commercial coming out in November about, and they're funny and they're humorous and they take difficult topics and kind of to make light of them. I really felt it was important to do that kind of commercial campaign because I wanted people to see what really happens and what, we, what we're doing. Everybody's having that same conversation when dad is not doing well and who's going to bathe dad. Nobody in the family wants to bathe dad. And we made it kind of a funny, kitschy commercial that received a lot of awards and now we're going to do our fourth commercial. But that kind of, oh, everyone can relate to that. They get it. They understand it. And it's a story that everybody is going to experience. So we might as well be talking about it more. And how we all can make it better. Yeah, I think that, that then that gives people ownership over the experience. And your know, death used to be so taboo, didn't it? And and it was something you very much did on your own. And it needn't be. And it should be an experience um, that you share. And, and and a big part of that is you're right, changing the culture around it and making it okay um, to talk about it. What about the? funeral industry the, the traditional funeral industry there's lots of talk of disruption there and people getting more creative and intentional around end of life is that something that you're excited about yeah i'm very passionate about the, about the end of life experience that someone goes through so we do this fabulous job taking care of somebody through their illness and then their their death and then we hand somebody over the body over to a funeral home to finish the work 
that we have started. Some funeral homes do a beautiful job. They are very respectful. They honor the traditions of the family and the choices. And some funeral homes completely botch it and do this horrible terrible situation where they, you know, overcharge families, they catch them at a time that's, they're very vulnerable and take advantage of that opportunity. So we work very hard at our center at making sure that certain funeral homes work with us and we won't work with other funeral homes. And we're very clear with families why we won't work with them. We're very transparent on that issue. But I think, I think if any industry has a lot of opportunity for change, it's the funeral home industry. Um, For example, one of the things we do when patients die is we do what's called a rose petal ceremony where we take roses that we have in our garden and we do a petal ceremony on the person's body when they're deceased. We include the whole family in the process or whomever wants to be present with the staff. So it gives the staff an opportunity to say goodbye because, you know, for some of these patients, we really know them very, very well. They're like family. We see them every day. So to be able to say goodbye to that person is important for all of us. And we try to make the whole cleansing the body and the bathing of the body and putting the person in a beautiful outfit and something that they really loved, really a a ritual that is healing. And for some people, they don't want anything to do with that. They say, you know, well, that's the body that their spirit isn't in that body anymore. It's just a shell. And it may be just a shell to some people, but still there's a piece that needs to be honored with that person's body. Um, and that's a, that's a real uh, vital and I think intimate time for a family to have cl- some closure. And then what I want is I want the funeral home to then take it to that next level. What does that look like? Why do we not have more funeral homes that do services outside? Why are we in heavily cloaked, draped old houses with a funeral? It's horrible. Mm -hmm. More funerals should be outside. More funerals should be in gardens. We're seeing a big uptick in the green funeral home industry, which I think is fabulous. And you had referenced Sandy, who we cared for, who died at age 51 two years ago. And for her, her dying wish is that she went to a green funeral. Well, she wanted to be buried in New Jersey. Because there was really nothing in Connecticut, and there was a beautiful green cemetery in New Jersey that she wanted to go to, and she wanted to see it. So Roger offered his helicopter to drive her to fly her over to see the location where she was going to be buried, which was just an amazing gift. Those things, I think, are super important because we're looking at how the body uh, is cherished in a way that's unique to that person, special to that family, and is different than just the usual, let's put somebody in a mahogany gold casket and put them in the ground. Um, The idea of being in sort of a meadow of flowers to me is gorgeous. Why not? That's a fabulous way to be, um, have your body honored. And so I think, you know, we're going in the right direction, but I think we have a long way to go. There's still a lot of people in the funeral home industry that are taking advantage of people at a difficult time. And sadly, um, there are people that just don't realize that that's happening. And we actually advocate on behalf of families all the time. We're part of that decision-making and helping them choose a funeral home. What does a funeral cost? What does it look like? Because a funeral home, a funeral should not cost $20,000 unless you're going to have, you know, a gold casket or something. Um, you know, there should be affordable funerals for people, affordable cremation. Uh, here in New York, there's Greenwood Cemetery, which is spectacular. And they have this amazing chapel and place where the body is cremated and it is beautifully honored in that space. And I think there should be lots of choices for families that are unique. Some people are using ashes and they're putting them in coral in the ocean. Yeah. Isn't that great? Beautiful. You know? And I think another part of this and you know our mutual friend Tom Camber and I were 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 researching this um for a project called Finale when we were looking at 
what are the services that could be put together to help people be more intentional and creative around end of life is um, is helping people to make their own arrangements. So rather than you know the tr- the traditional model where you die and then your family are kind of left at the hands of the funeral industry, which you know as you've said trade on emotions sometimes negatively and upsell. And and they're try they're in grief and they're trying to make best case decisions about what it is you would have wanted. And perhaps a better solution is is for you to 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 plan it yourself. You know, you plan the various other things that you do through life yourself, like moving house. And I think there's probably room for services around that. So you set the table for your family or your loved ones to come and, and grieve at. Uh, do you think we'll see we'll see more of that? I hope so. I think I'm a believer that people die as they've lived. They truly die as they've lived. So if they've been a messy person in life and they're not organized and disorganized, they usually have kind of a messy death. They don't have things taken care of. They don't have the arrangements made. They, you know, it's kind of all scattered. Conversely, when people are super organized and have made, you know, choice, you know, very careful decisions, they tend to be people that have, you know, their funeral home planned and all of the decisions made for their their end of life. But I think that we can have a hybrid of that. I think that people, if they think consciously about their future and how they want to be remembered, I think it's really important that people make those decisions with an organization that can help them. make. Because sometimes they don't even know what to do. I have families that will say, well, what is probate? How do you go through probate? What does it look like? All of that. Because they've never been through it before or they've never experienced, you know, how do you do a will and what does that look like? Um, Having an organization or a company that can help walk you through that journey perhaps before you're ill, so that if you do get ill, you have those choices made and that decision is all you know tidy and completed. It also is a gift to your loved ones. It's truly a gift. Right. Because at a grieving time, there's nothing worse than a grieving daughter, a grieving son having to figure out where to bury mom, what are we going to do with mom, what were mom's decisions, do we remember even what mom said she wanted to have? Have we had, did we have a conversation about what mom would be buried in or what she liked or what kind of music she wanted or what kind of service we would do? Those are things that people shouldn't be making at a critical time when they're grieving because it's just, it's just too much. It's too much. So if an individual makes those choices and writes them down and has a company help them do that, I think it will be really helpful and i think there's a lot of people that you would utilize that service yeah i think so and and and, let, and let's hope so mm-hmm. uh, because it's you know there's, there's 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 things you're in control of and there's things you're not in control of and obviously we're, we're going to die but you're all in control of how you and your your loved ones get to navigate that process mm-hmm. have you thought about your own death and end of life and how that might look i have i've thought a lot about and i'm a planner so I, you know, I planned a lot, um, but I started probably when my children were three, two or three. Uh, their dad and I started a process where we write letters to our kids. Uh, usually New Year's Eve every year, we write a letter to them and we put it in a safe. So we have a lot of letters because they're almost seventeen. Uh, and in between, I've written letters to them. And recently, I started this thing where I decided I want to videotape myself about certain things, so that because I've taken care of so many young people recently. I mean, really young, thirties and forties, that. Um, I started thinking, you know, if I die tomorrow, you know, I want my son to know, you know, this about, you know, people he's dating or whatever. So I have started to really take that more seriously and record and, and write more about what I want the kids to know them thinking. And of course, you know, my children have grown up in a household where their mom cares for dying people. So it's a little unusual and unique. 
but they also have the blessing of meeting some of the amazing people I care for. And so they look at life very differently as teenagers than what a typical teenager would look at. And I think actually very healthily because they don't make bad choices and they tend to make healthy decisions for themselves because they see on the other end what happens to people that don't. Um, I guess it's a little bit of fear probably too, but it's also, I think, living, they have really tried to raise them to live an authentic, transparent, honest life, regardless of judgment. And um, so for me, I believe in legacy, leaving a legacy. It doesn't have to be financial, but my, to my kids, my legacy is building my center. And then I know for the rest of their lives and you know, perpetually you know, for you know, many, many years is that center will continue on and care for. We care for 1,200 patients a year. It's a lot of patients. And you know, regardless of me being there or not, that, that legacy will continue. And I, you know, that I know that that will be something that – I believed in and still believe in and believe that in the future that that will help people who really need it and that we're looking at death differently and that we're, you know, turning it on its side and saying it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to look like this. It can be beautiful and incredible and, you know, uh, transcendent and um, opening for people that are around somebody at the end of their life. And it can change everybody's lives if you're with somebody who, who dies like that. It really does. It's life altering. And so I think for me, I hope that I, I hope I die like that. I hope I die in my own center. I don't know. I've always wondered when I built it. I think I said that to people like, am I building this for myself? <laughs> you yeah. know, it's kind of strange, but, um, yeah, I mean, I want it to be for my mother or my loved ones, the same thing as for the people I care for. Our employees and our volunteers treat our patients and their families like it's their own family, and that's the way it should be. That's wonderful, and, and what a great design lens to look through. You know, how, how is this a place where I would like to where I would like to die? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got to bring it, start to bring it to a close. Now, there's one area that's that's just come up in in my mind as we're chatting, and I just wanted to get your opinion on it. The death with dignity movement is is now mm-hmm. rising, and, mm-hmm. and because you're you're in the field and really interested to. To, to know what you think about it. You know, we've got states in the U.S. where if you are terminal, then you can opt to go on a program. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's um, a good thing? Is it being done well? Will we see more of it? I'm just keen to get a sense of what sure. you and your peers mm-hmm. who are, you know, at the, at, the, at, the, at the forefront of this industry, what, what do you think of it all? I think it's difficult. I think it's difficult on a lot of levels. When it first became legal in Oregon, gosh, maybe 15 years ago or more, I think it may have been more than that, um, it was a challenge because there was a disconnect between the death with dignity. It was called Compassionate Choices then. Now it's called Death with Dignity Movement. Uh, There was a disconnect between the decision to be able to make a choice on that and then the healthcare environment being able to support it. There's still a disconnect. There's lots and lots of physicians, and I think the AMA, I think still in many states, opposes it. So that's a big piece because you've got physicians who are supposed to be administering it and yet are not for the concept because they've been trained to do no harm and to them taking someone's life is doing harm. So it goes right against the Hippocratic Oath, which is a difficult challenge. I know there's lots of physicians who support it and are willing to do it. And then there's lots of physicians that are not. You know, I have a mixed feeling about this. Um, One, if you look at the data and the research, people that actually do the application to die. You have to do a full application. It's very medical and kind of legal and fill it out and says, you know, this is how you want to die and blah, blah, blah. And you have to go through all of these psychological tests. A very, very small percentage of people, I don't know the exact data, but it's very small percent actually go through with it. 
What they really needed was a need to have a control over what if. What if I get to the mm. point where I'm, I have shortness of breath at such that I have no quality of life? Or I'm worried that I'm not going to be you know, uh, cognitively able to make that decision. So I want to do it now before I get to that point. Most patients don't actually go through with it. They just need to have that control really? because their whole life is out of control. Their whole life is out of control. Mm. They're sick. They feel miserable. What if, what if, what if? I understand that challenge. I can understand why somebody would feel the need to do that. I think that what I've experienced is at the end of life, if symptoms are controlled, if someone is really medically uh, fragile and you're able to really create a cocoon of such to create a quality of life that has dignity where they're not in pain, they're not suffering, all of those things. What I have found is that people really have some meaningful conversations at the end of their life. Take that away and you terminate your life before those conversations happen, you've missed the boat, right? You've missed all that opportunity to have those really poignant, important pieces that are gems that you could give to your kids or your family or loved ones, whomever. So I think that is the challenge for me as I've been at the bedside of so many dying people at the end of their life up until the last breath. And lots of people have fabulous things they want to still contribute and say up until that last breath. And so if you do that prematurely by, you know, taking your own life, you lose out on that. In many cases, but for some people, they need that. They need that control. The fear of what it could be or what is going to be is so, so great that they can't manage it. So I understand that. I also know that most patients, they can still take their own life. They don't need a physician to do it. And of course we have suicide is increasingly on the rise. People are making that decision to take their own life, whether they're sick or not. And so do we need to have the medical community involved in it? I, I don't know. That I, I, challenges me. I don't know that you need a physician to do it. People can overdose on medication without a physician. Mm. And then you take out that piece of someone feeling responsible for making that choice. So it, it's going to be a challenge, and we'll see how it goes over the next few years. I think we may have five states right now that where it's legal. Connecticut has gone back and forth about it. Um, it's not legal right now in Connecticut. Uh, one of the things we'll have to consider if it becomes legal in Connecticut is the, um, you know, is it integrated and is there a continual um, process through the entire system? Because right now, if someone were to kill themselves on hospice, um, it's considered to be what's called a sentinel event in the public health world. It's a big deal. Um, so there needs to be, that's a disconnect in the laws. So we need to really make sure if we're going to do it well, that it's done thoroughly. And I worry that people will think that hospice is about that when it, that's not at all what we're about. We're really believers that if you get the symptoms under control, you can have the best quality of life possible to the very end. But I absolutely understand why somebody would want to have that, that choice, that control and, and have that. And I don't, I don't judge them on that. I think that that's, that's what they need to have in their life. That's important. Yeah. I think that's a really balanced answer to the question. Mm -hmm. I've never quite had it explained like that. So thank you. I think that's Mm -hmm. going to be really useful to a lot of people to hear it explained like that. And um, it's individual, isn't it? We all, Mm -hmm. like you said, you'll die as as you lived. And it's nice for, I, I guess, for some people to have that option. One of the things that I picked up on that I think is, is beautiful is that you said that you risk taking away the natural end of life, those final chapters where you have honest conversations. And I think that's a wonderful thing to just think about. You know, if, if, if honest conversations are obviously important, they're part of being human, they're part of us being fulfilled and, and flourishing, you know, perhaps today's the, the right day to have honest conversations. And if there's you know, one of the takeaways I'm hearing you know, the, the, there's, there's the difference between dying well and, and not dying well, but 
um, its authenticity and mm-hmm. you know really making the most of the relationships and the life that you that you have today and that's a great gift of the work and mm. um i can't thank you enough for that i'm, I'm going to bring it to a close now but um a couple of final questions who are your heroes mm. and why Gloria Steinem, because I was in 18 when I saw her to speak for the first time when I was in college. And then last year I saw her in her one woman show. And I think what she's done for women and what she has moved sort of the women's movement forward in, in many, many, many years, I think is pretty incredible. So I think she's one of my heroes. Maya Angelou, of course, is one of my heroes. I think too, and this is kind of funny, I think Oprah is one of my heroes because I think that she tells it like it is. And I believe in women who can tell it like it is and be honest about times are tough, times are not tough. You have to be human and real and and live your life authentically. And I think that she really tries to portray that in her work, really living an authentic life. And uh, so it's mostly women and certainly um, my kids. You know, my kids, you know, it sounds funny, you know, my children are younger than me, but my kids really, when you have children, you know, it changes your whole life and your perspective. When I cared for people before I had kids who were dying, it changed overnight when I became a parent. It's a very different realm as a therapist and, if, and someone who's running a, a CEO of a hospice versus uh, when you have kids, you know, you see things entirely differently. So my kids really offer a great perspective to me that I think is important. And I have probably a handful of patients that are uh, never forget patients who, Sandy being one of them, um, who changed my life changed my life, taught me something I needed to know at that particular time of life. And I've carried it with me. And they're really probably the reason why I continue to do the work because I get to meet people that are uh, truly angels on this planet that teach us lessons that we can then pass on to others. Yeah, that's, that's, that's wonderful. And as I've said a couple of times, the gift that you get from the work and, and it's all in your approach is, is just wonderful. When you look back on it, uh, this is a question about legacy. Oh boy. What do you want your legacy to be? Or what are they going to write in the sky when, when Cynthia dies? Yeah, I don't know. You know, somebody said to me, you take a really difficult topic, Cynthia, and, you're, and you talk about it as though it's okay to talk about. Somebody said that you take like something that's a taboo discussion, you're able to just normalize it. And they're like, that's kind of unusual, but that's what I've always done in this work. So it's hard to imagine that that's anything other than just what I do. Um, my legacy, I think, will be my center and, and hopefully the other centers that I'll build. I really believe in looking at dying and living fully till you die completely differently. And I think we've done that in the center. We've been open for five years. And now that we're going to have this first pediatric you know, wing, that will be new and different. But the idea of building these centers around the country and maybe around the world and changing culture and looking at, at dying differently, that I believe will be my legacy, truly. And I think that's what I, you know, it's a reason I think, you know, many years ago, I lost my best friend. And to this day, I believe that that was sort of an opening for me to know that that was the work I needed to do. Um, and I love it. Love, love, love. What lucky I get to be able to meet amazing people at a very difficult time in their lives and uh, share the message of what they share with me. Yeah. So it's, it's wonderful to meet somebody who's so passionate about their work and, and you're clearly in flow. And that's a big thing that we're interested in at The Wild. Uh, thank you for telling us about it. Uh, where can our, uh, our listeners find you online? makingthebestofeveryday.org or regionalhospice.ct.com. Uh, okay, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and the final question is, you know, it's been said that search engines can come up with answers, uh, but a, a wise sage is the one that asks the right question. And now, you know, this is a show about flourishing and living our best lives and leaving a legacy. What, what would you say is, you know, one question we could all ask ourselves today 
to make sure we're on the right course towards living living well and, and, and then dying well. Yeah. Are we living an authentic life? Are we happy if today we took our last breath? Do we feel like what we're leaving behind is something we're proud of? Or our children and family would be proud of or our loved ones would be proud of? That is a question I try to ask people all the time. Are you happy? If you're not happy, don't do the work you're doing. If you're around toxic people, make change. Don't live life in a way that you'll have regrets and really try to look at your life with some level of truth, even if the truth is sometimes painful and hard to look at. Look at it and work through it and get past it. That would be what I would say. It's a wonderful answer. Cynthia Roy, thank you for taking us to the end and and, and helping us to realize uh, what the beginning and the middle should look like because of that. Uh, it's been great to spend time with you. Thank you. And thank you for your work and for your contribution. Thank you, Crispin. So thanks to Cynthia for a fantastic episode. Really interesting conversation. Could have talked a lot more about that subject. And it's clear that the gift of your work is the invaluable insights that you get, not just on dying, but on on how to live. Uh, We look forward to lots more partnership with you in the future. uh, And just thanks for everything you're doing. You can find Cynthia at regionalhospice.org. You can find us at wildpeople.com or on Instagram at wildpeople. Thanks for listening and stay wild.